The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did indeed come down in order to save us, in order to redeem us. And how often we, like the Jews of your day, grumble in response to this good news. What a contrast. May we not grumble today, but give you praise instead. As we receive the gift of our salvation joyfully and gladfully. Lord Jesus, speak to us this morning. Teach us from your word that we might bring you honor and praise today. Amen. Please be seated. For the Christians in Philippi, there was nothing casual about their faith. They lived in a Roman colony where Caesar was not merely esteemed, but quite literally worshipped as Lord and Savior. Christians represented less than 1% of the population, and the religion that they adhered to was viewed as a foreign intrusion. Paul, the founder of their church, had been imprisoned on multiple occasions by the state. And when he wrote this letter to them from Rome, he was awaiting news on a possible death sentence. When you called Jesus Lord and Savior in Philippi, it was a serious commitment. We, by contrast, live in a world where faith is much more casual. Christians are the largest religious group in North America. There are churches in every town. We have little to fear aside from the occasional sneer. We're comparatively wealthy, well-fed, educated, and employable. We can afford to be a bit more casual about our Christianity, except that we can't. As we will see in our passage this morning, there's nothing casual whatsoever about the Christian faith. It requires obedience. It insists on personal transformation. It entails suffering, and it ultimately leads to joy. You can find our passage from Philippians 2 on page 981 in the Red Bibles, and we'll be focusing particularly on verses 12 to 18 of chapter 2 as we explore three different themes. First, we are going to discuss the work of salvation, then the problem with whining, and finally holding back versus holding fast. I hope you'll turn there with me to page 981, Philippians chapter 2. Building on his astonishing description of Jesus' ministry, 
in verses 5 to 11. Paul now turns to basic instructions about the Christian life. And the move, it's a little jarring. It's a little, it's a little jarring, but in Paul's mind, it makes all the sense in the world. On the last day, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because of this, Paul wants his friends in Philippi to live in a way that faithfully anticipates that day. You know the ultimate outcome of all things, he's saying. Live like it. So he writes in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And for those of us who came to faith in the Protestant world, Paul's instruction to work out your own salvation, it's a little confusing and perhaps even troubling. We've been taught that salvation is God's work and God's alone. And that's true. Paul himself writes in the letter to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what's going on here in Philippians 2? Has Paul changed his mind and decided that we need to contribute a little something in order to seal the deal? Well, the answer is no. His teaching on the nature of salvation, it's consistent throughout his letters, even as his emphasis changes to address different circumstances. At the beginning of this extended section on Christian behavior that we're in right now, at the beginning in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, Paul already made clear that salvation is from God. So he writes, Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel... And then he concludes, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Well, that truth still stands a few verses later in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Salvation is from God. And that salvation has consequences for how we live today. So Paul says, work out your own salvation. In other words, this is not a passive thing. You have work to do in response to this incredible thing that God is accomplishing. Your salvation will be expressed in your obedience. And we do this with fear and trembling. In other words, this is not a casual thing. As Paul said in verse 10, one day, one day you are going to appear before the risen Jesus, bend your knee and honor him as Lord and King. What will the life you offer him look like? Well, thankfully, this is not a work we're left to do on our own. Listen again to verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul writes, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice the work that God does for us and in us. He shapes our wills. He inspires our every effort. He gives us both desire and direction. So the verb used here for God's work is, is energeo. And it's the word from which we get our word energy. It's his power and presence within us, his energy that enables us to do the works that come with our salvation. We work out our salvation as God works within us. 
Well, having made this direct appeal to obedience and to hard work in verses 12 and 13, Paul gets very specific in verse 14. So we move from our first topic, the work of salvation, to our second, which is the problem of whining. Verse 14 is concise and direct. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The word grumbling, it can also be translated as complaining or whining. And the word disputing can also be translated as arguing or bickering. It's a great picture. Of all the things, of all the things that Paul could have talked about at this point, we can't help but wonder why he wants to talk about this. Did the Philippians have a problem with complaining and arguing among themselves? Well, they may have. There are hints in the letter. And in chapter 4, Paul will actually call out two women by name and tell them to get along. So there may be a particular issue with the Philippians, but I think Paul turns to this topic for more than that reason. And the question is why? Why and what do we have to learn from this? Well, we can start with the very simple observation that both grumbling and disputing are signs of self-centeredness. So small children complain because they have no sense of the needs and feelings of those around them. It's all about them all the time. So when they're unhappy or hungry or hot, they let you know. Now these same things happen with self-absorbed adults, even though by that point in life they should know better. Likewise, people who are argumentative or prone to bicker, they also tend to be self-centered. They are more interested in you listening to them than they are in listening to you. Well, this kind of self-centered behavior, it stands in contrast to Paul's insistence earlier when he instructed the Philippians to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. I did not enjoy thinking about this this week. I'm just going to be honest, because the more I thought about grumbling, the more convicted I became. I began listening to myself, to those little drips of irritation and complaint that I drop into conversations. And I began noticing the critical spirit and the self-centeredness behind them. I also began listening to everyone else a bit more carefully. And I was surprised by how much all of us complain, especially when we have very little of substance to actually complain about. Some people, some people seem to feed on discontent, drawing a kind of dark energy from being unhappy. Others appear to delight in being impossible to please, as if their supposedly high standards are a sign of some nobility of character. Still others seem to think that by complaining, they're just being authentic. Now, that motivation to be honest or transparent, it's a good one. But what generally happens is less about being authentic, and it's more about venting frustration. So when you go on and on complaining about things, you may be honest about how you're feeling, but you're not being honest about how petty, self-centered, and impatient you're being. I'm going to say this directly. I'm not picking on anyone 
But if whining, complaining, and criticizing other people are part of you being authentic, then the problem is not your circumstances, the problem is you. Don't confuse being honest about how you feel with seeing things as they really are. They are not the same. Now, one of the reasons Paul wants to nip all of this whining in the bud is because discontent leads to dispute. Grumbling and disputing, as our translation puts it, not only do they have self-centeredness in common, the first one leads to the second. And this is where Paul's choice of words is especially provocative. The word that he uses for grumbling in Philippians 2, it's the same one that we find scattered throughout the book of Numbers in the Old Testament that describes the grumbling of Israel. And it's that same word you heard in John chapter 6 from our gospel reading. Now we all know what happens in the Exodus when the people of Israel start grumbling. They begin arguing with each other, then with Moses, and then ultimately they start arguing with God. And they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years as a result. So Paul knows what happens when we grumble and bicker. We end up in a wilderness of our own making, unable to inhabit the land that God has called us to. And we communicate to the world around us that the freedom that we've received through Jesus Christ, our salvation, well, it's not such a great thing after all. So listen again to verses 14 and 15 and why Paul tells them not to whine and argue. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul wants his friends in Philippi and he wants us to shine brightly in a dark world. He wants us to walk a straight path in a world that's crooked. He wants us to reveal the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. But we can't do that if we are complaining about the world and arguing amongst ourselves. There are lots of good reasons to be concerned about our world. Lots of good reasons. Our job as followers of Jesus, however, is not to complain about the darkness but to shine the light of Christ in the midst of it. Our primary vocation is not to tell our friends and neighbors how terrible society has become, but to show them how good Jesus is. Now, this doesn't mean turning a blind eye to bad things, not at all. But it might mean a change of tone when you communicate on social media or a change of topic when you're in the middle of a conversation. According to Paul, grumbling and bickering are an affront to God and they're a bad witness to the world. And that's the problem with whining. Now we need to shift to our third and final topic, which is holding back versus holding fast. So I want to go back to verses 14 and 17 one last time, and I want you to listen to them all the way through. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life 
so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. People who are casual about their Christianity tend to hold back. They hold back on obeying God's word because it's inconvenient. They hold back on committing to Christian community because their old friends are easier to be around. They hold back on studying God's word because it's hard work. They hold back because they're aware that if they start to take things seriously, their lives are going to have to change. Now, Paul's aware of this temptation. And instead of holding back, he encourages us to hold fast to the word of life. It's an unusual phrase and has a double meaning, holding on to and holding up. We are meant to hold on to this word of life, the gospel message, to hold fast to it in the darkness as the source of our being and the light to our own path. And we are meant to hold up this word of life, to carry it before us and to share it with others who are shrouded in darkness. In this context, holding up, holding out, Paul returns to the theme of hard work. It's not an easy thing. And he doesn't want to run in vain or labor in vain, as he says in verse 16. He then goes on in verses 17 and 18, and he says, even if I am poured out, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should rejoice, should be glad and rejoice with me. So drink offerings were common in the ancient world. A valuable liquid like oil or wine would be poured out on an altar as an offering to a god. When a drink offering was made, every last drop was poured out. And that's where the power of the illustration comes in. Paul expects to give every last ounce of himself to Jesus by serving God's people. He won't hold anything back in his pursuit of obedience and in his effort to look to the needs of others before he looks to his own. Now, there seems to be an allusion here to the possibility of martyrdom, to that death sentence quite likely hanging over Paul's head. And this makes the end of the paragraph all the more striking. Even if I'm killed, he seems to be saying, it will be worth it. And I will rejoice because it will be for the good of the kingdom of God. And he concludes his thought by inviting them to rejoice with him even at the thought of death. So think about this paragraph as a whole. It begins with an admonition, don't whine, stop bickering. And it ends with an invitation to rejoice. Now Paul travels quite a distance from one to the next. They're connected. People who rejoice in the Lord because they're holding fast to the word of life, they tend not to grumble, even when life is uncertain. The mature expression of one's faith is joy regardless of circumstances, while the immature expression of one's faith is to grumble because of circumstances. Now, we're going to come back to this theme of joy and rejoicing in a few weeks when we come to the end of the letter. So I won't say much more now, but be assured that Paul isn't just saying, put on your happy face for Jesus. He's not saying to ignore the darkness or to pretend that there won't be suffering. 
He's saying that because the future is certain, Christ will return, the dead will rise, every knee will bow. Because the future is certain, we can hold fast here and now with joy. So in verses 14 to 18, Paul talks about the work of salvation. He talks about the problem with whining and the importance of holding fast when we're tempted to hold back. In verses 19 to 30 then, which is the second half of our reading, he appears to shift gears in order to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus. It feels like he's moving away from instruction and back into a much more personal section of the letter. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. Paul is holding these men up as examples of the kind of life he's been talking about since halfway through chapter 1. And so he writes about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So what he says about Timothy, and then he, he turns to explain why he's sending Epaphroditus, and he writes this, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all. And then he concludes in verse 30 by explaining, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So when Paul, when Paul described the humble and selfless ministry of Jesus earlier in chapter 2, it was hard not to think, well, that's Jesus. I mean, come on, I could never be like that. But here, he shows how both Timothy and Epaphroditus have followed Jesus' example. Timothy consistently seeks the interests of other people. And Epaphroditus nearly died for the sake of the gospel. These were normal men working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They were models for the Philippians, and they're meant to be models for us. This is a life that we too can live. So I began uh, this morning by talking about how tempting it is for us to, to be casual about our faith. We've seen in our passage what this looks like. We're inclined to treat our salvation as a distant work done by God that requires little of us by way of consequence. We tend to be careless with our words, allowing complaint and criticism to pepper our speech in such a way that dims the light of the gospel. And when push comes to shove, we hold back rather than holding fast protecting ourselves from the consequences of our faith rather than holding forth the goodness and the glory of Jesus. As you go out this day, I want to ask you to take these reflections with you and ask the Lord simply and sincerely, am I being casual? And if so, where? And let him show you. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, it's easy for us to hold back when you want us to hold fast. It's easy for us not to allow you to work in us, to work out our salvation. It's easy for us to give in to whining and grumbling instead of rejoicing. Where we are casual, would you convict us? And would you strengthen us by the power of your spirit to follow you, to honor you, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but also with joy, knowing that the day will come when all will be redeemed and restored in you. We give you thanks and praise and commit these things to, do, to you in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.